1 Timothy chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our passage today is about masters and slaves and the relationship between them as we've looked at the relationship between widows and the church and their families. We looked at the relationship between the church and elders. And now as Paul talks about within the church, the relationship of masters and slaves, the ESV translates it bond servants, but the word there in the Greek is doulos, which is simply means slave. Many Christians are embarrassed that wherever the Bible mentions slaves or slavery, that it does not immediately and categorically reject it. We may want to skip over those passages or brush them away, but I found in my own life that whenever I've become embarrassed about the Bible or embarrassed about what the Bible says on a particular topic, in the end, it is my embarrassment that brings me shame, not God's Word. While most Christians see the way the Bible deals with slavery or the way it doesn't deal with slavery as an, uh, as an apologetic obstacle, in our passage today and others like it, Paul seems to see slavery as an apologetic opportunity. How can we begin to shift then from apologizing back to apologetics? Is it possible that though many may be dissatisfied with how the Bible talks about slavery and their first response may be criticism, that the long-term fruit of obedience to God's Word may actually be the greater witness to Christ. That the beauty of the gospel can shine through the church even here in what has often become a very, very dark place. See, one of the biggest hurdles that we face in this is that we live in and are greatly influenced by a world that sees servitude and sees slavery as inherently and necessarily bad and dehumanizing. We live in a world that divides people into two categories, those who are oppressed and those who do the oppressing. When the Bible divides people into two different categories— those who know Christ and who will be with him for all eternity, who are united with him, and those who are not united with him, who do not know him, and who are damned to hell. Those are the two categories of Scripture from Genesis 3 on. You see, we have no category for a slave or a servant structure in our world that is morally okay. 
And yet we rest our hopes for eternity on a God who made himself a servant. That we may no longer be slaves to sin, the one category that the Bible speaks of, but that we may be slaves to righteousness, the other kind of people that the Bible talks about. And slaves to God and to Christ, we see that in Romans 6.18 and 6. 20 and 1 Corinthians 7.22 and 1 Peter 2.16 and all over Scripture in the passage we just read, even in the Old Testament, God says, these are my slaves. And we're told, and we even tell each other to follow Jesus' example in his service. How do we reconcile these things? How does the Bible reconcile these things? Well, I think the gospel, though it didn't immediately eliminate slavery, it did immediately elevate the slave, which has led to the elimination of slavery in every place that the gospel has flourished. How does that happen? Well, my bottom line for this morning is this, a low earthly position can be of high value in God's household. A low earthly position infused with the power of the gospel in our life, with what Christ has done because we are united with Christ and it's about him and what he has done because he became a slave and he was elevated to the throne. When we are united with him, even a low earthly position can be of high value in God's household. Not that a low position has greater inherent moral value, but that there is no one in and through whom God is unable to show his strength and love. So to, to, to support this conclusion, I want to answer three questions this morning. First, I want to answer the question, how can masters have slaves? Biblically, how can masters have slaves? How can slaves honor masters? And then, how did Jesus honor slaves? How can masters have slaves? How can slaves honor masters? And how did Jesus honor slaves? Okay, how can masters have slaves? That is, in the New Testament, or for our sermon among these Ephesian Christians at the time uh, that this letter was written, how can masters have slaves? few suggestions have been put forward to answer this question, and I want to deal with a couple of them. The first question that comes up is, well, is Paul compromising with culture? Some people will say, well, Paul's kind of making this compromise with culture, and I want to answer that with an emphatic no. This objection is sort of like the set of a play or a musical, you know, when you glance at it from the back row, it looks pretty real, but when you take any kind of close look, when you touch it at all, you realize that is as flimsy and as fake as possible. Paul, who preached the gospel, although he knew and said in his letters that it would be a stumbling block for the Jew and it would be folly to the Gentiles, Yet still, he calls it the wisdom of God and doesn't care what the world thinks about that. But on this topic, apparently, he's compromised. 
Paul, who, has five time, who was five times given 40 lashes minus one for preaching God's word, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, and he says, given countless beatings and imprisonments, but on this topic, on this one, he compromised. All the others, he was fine to take his beating. But this time, it feels a little anachronistic, doesn't it? Paul, who in 2 Timothy tells us, tells Timothy that he has fought the good fight, he's finished the race, he's kept the faith all the way to the end. Oh, but accept Timothy on that matter of slavery. On that one, I did kind of fudge a little bit. Ah, yes, someone might say, but, Cody, you don't realize slavery would have had massive economic ramifications in that day. It would have been such a big deal. Certainly, Paul didn't want to, you know, that had been a lot of feathers to unsettle. Well, it turns out that Paul dealt with that very thing in Acts 19, if you remember the story. Demetrius started a riot because of Paul, against Paul, because the gospel was so transforming the economy that it was ruining his idol business. And oh, What city did that happen in? Do you remember? Ephesus. This city. Paul has already upturned the economic structure of Ephesus. Oh, but on this one he compromised? That makes no sense. We have to stop making that excuse. It makes no sense. Thankfully, we have much reason to believe that Paul is not compromising, that he gives instructions about slavery all throughout the New Testament that would not have been satisfying to the sinful and selfish masters of the day, and it also would not have been satisfying to the sinful and selfish slaves of the day. Is Paul compromising with culture? No. Is Paul endorsing any form of slavery? Also, no. We tend to have a very flat view of slavery. All slavery we see as kind of the same. It's all slavery is the same, and all slavery is the worst kind of evil. That's how we think about it. Probably if when I said earlier that Paul confronts the sin and selfishness of the slaves, if that did something in your head or your heart, you're like, whoa, you can't say that. Then you, I want you to understand that that is a sign that you have succumbed to this misconception. The Bible says all people are selfish and sinful. doesn't matter if they're masters or slaves. And all sin is the worst kind of slavery, and it needs to be confronted and repented of, no matter what your earthly position is. Getting back to my sermon now. But then, you may say, what do we do with Christians in history who did not categorically reject slavery, who maybe even supported slavery? What do we do with a guy like George Whitfield, let's say? You know who George Whitfield is? George Whitfield, around the mid-1700s, traveled up and down the colonies, uh, was the great, well, maybe perhaps the greatest uh, evangelist, of, certainly of that day, maybe of American history in many ways. 
on the one hand, he didn't just say it was okay for slavery to be legal, but he actually lobbied for it to be made legal in the state of Georgia so that through slave labor, he could afford to house more orphans at his orphanage. He thought, well, if I could just help get this legalized in Georgia, then my labor costs would go down and I could take care of more orphans here. And we want to kind of put our palm on our forehead and go like, what are you thinking, George? Yet on the other hand, he was also at that time the most ardent evangelist to and promoter of educating slaves. He would publicly say that he was willing to take the whip from any slave owner who did not like the fact that he was preaching the gospel to slaves. He openly told slaves, slave owners rather, who treated their slaves poorly, that God's judgment was going to come on them. And when he died, it is said that black Americans expressed the greatest grief at his death. That no one did more for the gospel among slaves in that century than Whitfield did. How do we deal with that kind of paradox? Well, the issue is complex. It's not that simple. It's not so flat. And even in Scripture, slavery is not one size fits all. I want to give a, a short, like maybe a side, a brief primer on the Bible's overall view of slavery. Maybe it will help us to kind of begin to understand um, or begin to gain a better understanding of what particular evils slavery lends itself to, and thus why Paul instructs slaves and masters the way he does. This is by, going to be by no means comprehensive, but hopefully it will get us started. While there is some indications of slavery in the book of Genesis, for instance, Abraham, when he didn't have a son and God is telling him, you know, is talking to him, he says to God, uh, well, I'm going to give all of my inheritance to my, this slave that I have. And God says, no, I'm going I'm to give you a son if you remember that. So they, we have some indication of slavery even back in the life of Abraham. We know that it was prominent from very early times of civilization. But the first big event of slavery is actually God's own people. And God told Abraham, actually, that that was going to happen 400 years before it did. Remember in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions." I think we can say that the worst slavery of the Bible is the slavery that God delivered his own people from. At least the worst earthly slavery, temporal slavery. It, it becomes the grounds for establishing God as their God and the command to them to obey his law in Exodus 20 verse 2. It becomes the grounds for God's people being considered slaves to God, as I read earlier in Leviticus 25, 42. And these are ideas that run 
throughout Scripture that are fulfilled in our own deliverance from sin by Christ and our own slavery then to righteousness. So perhaps we'd say that the slavery in Egypt is the second worst slavery described in Scripture, and the worst slavery described in Scripture is slavery to sin. And the fact that we find it difficult to fathom that our slavery to sin is worse than any kind of slavery, human temporal slavery, that has ever existed on the face of the earth tells us how much we are influenced by a materialistic, godless worldview. That we don't understand just how horrible our sin is to an eternal God who would deliver us from it by the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. We would not understand the immense bondage and death from which we have been saved by God. This is not to make light of slavery in Egypt or anywhere else in the world, but to emphasize just how significant the freedom is that we have in Jesus. So the person who says, Some good it is that Whitfield's preaching set so many slaves free from sin. But he didn't preach to set them free from slave owners. It's missing the greater point. And perhaps we would have loved for Whitfield to have done both. but we have to make sure that our priorities are in line with what the Bible's priorities are. We have to make sure that our view of reality is congruent with what the Bible's view of reality is. The fact of God's people being delivered from slavery not only generally frames the life of frames life as God's people, but it specifically framed temporal slavery in the promised land. Slavery was a given in civilization, and it is treated as a given uh, in Israelite culture as well. However, slaves were given protection by God's law. First, and perhaps most importantly, kidnapping and selling people was punishable by death, Deuteronomy 24-7. It was one of the worst kinds of evil in God's law kidnapping humans and selling them. Slaves were protected from injury and ruthless masters, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 5.14. Israelites couldn't even um, own Israelites perpetually because they were God's slaves, first and foremost, whom God had freed from slavery in Egypt, Leviticus 25 and Jeremiah 34.16, the passages that I read earlier. Slavery within Israel was typically a means to alleviate financial hardship. Rather than starving or rather than doing nothing or rather than doing something illegal like stealing or whatever, one could sell himself, work for six years, get out of debt, and then be freed. Every seven years, people were freed. And then on uh, the year of Jubilee, which is seven times seven plus one, the 50th year, everything 
was to be set free, right? And when this covenant obligation of freeing slaves was broken, as in Jeremiah 34, God, though He had mercy on the people for some time, and through His prophets convicted them of sin, and they said, oh, we have done wrong, and they set their slaves free, and then as soon as they walked out, they said, well, gosh, this doesn't work out very well for us. And so they re- enslaved the people, and God's wrath came on them in a significant and severe way. Slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire was widespread. It's, by safe estimates, um, perhaps a third of the entire Roman Empire were actually slaves. The slavery there, the times in Ephesus and the time of the New Testament was written, was varied. Some slaves were treated quite poorly, while others would, might hold high positions running their master's estates or even owning their own businesses. And so many of the New Testament letters mention slaves and masters. None of them, however, call for an immediate end to slavery. Whether you were a master or a slave, it didn't affect your standing before God or in the church. Galatians 3.28. So if you were a slave owner who was a Christian, if you were a slave who was a Christian in God's church before God and standing in the church, it did not matter. Of significant importance is that nowhere in the New Testament does it command that masters or slave owners be put under church discipline for owning slaves. We can, we can derive from this that even if the social structure wasn't ideal, the fact of slave having slaves wasn't deemed a sin. And yet this social structure could easily turn sinful in the way it was lived out, as we saw many times in the Old Testament and as we saw in the regulations that God puts into his Old Testament law to try to protect against that. So to say that Christians of Whitfields or whatever time shouldn't be listened to, shouldn't be respected, shouldn't be read at all, or even perhaps aren't Christians because of their views about slavery... As, for time, as is suggested from time to time, is, I think, self-righteous arrogance and willful ignorance. It's self-righteously arrogant and willfully ignorant to the reality that we all have blind spots for which future generations will look on us regrettably. I want you to understand, future generations, your great-great-grandkids will look on you and they will say, how did the church miss that? Why didn't they? do this? Why didn't they get rid of that? That will be true of us. Did, have you ever thought of that? This kind of thinking, it pretends that if we were in their shoes, that if I lived 200 years ago, let's say, that it would have been obvious to me but I don't fancy that I have greater devotion to Christ or a greater knowledge of God's Word than many of them do. I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not as smart or as wise, or do, nor do I love the Lord as much as many of those men, George Whitfield included, 
did. And of course, we need to weigh every teaching, whether teaching from someone who lived 200 years ago or teaching from someone who said it 200 minutes ago by God's Word. And that every teacher, including myself, is prone to error and is prone to sin. Yet to say, don't ever read them, don't ever listen to them, is to not allow the gospel to work in our own hearts and minds. It is the kind of arrogance and ignorance that we will see next week spreads dissension in the church and is antithetical to the gospel. Nevertheless, we can say clearly that chattel slavery, the kind that we saw in our own country's history, is abominable to God. It's abominable to God because it was grounded first in ethnic partiality, and God says that he has no partiality, and we ought to not have partiality. It's abominable to God because it often considered and treated humans as less than human, as if they were not made in God's image, and that is abominable to God. It's abominable to God because it often allowed masters to treat their slaves ruthlessly. It's abominable to God because the slaves themselves were typically and often kidnapped. Crime that God says ought to be punished by death, a capital offense. For all those reasons, God judged our country with the bloodiest war in our history. The bloodiest war in our history was us killing us. Still, if Paul didn't get this whole thing wrong and God meant what he said, we have, a, we have to ask the question, how then can slaves honor masters? How then can slaves honor masters? Well, how should slaves honor masters? It says that they should give them all honor. Remember, we saw that widows should be given honor, elders should be given double honor, and now it says that slaves ought to give their masters all honor. They should give them the respect that's due to them because of their position over them. Titus 2 describes it as being submissive, well-pleasing, and not argumentative. But also, they should render to them hardworking and honest service. And we see this in passages in Ephesians and Colossians where Paul addresses masters and slaves. And he says that they should work hard as if working for the Lord not just when they're being watched, but all the time. Now you might ask, why aren't you talking much about masters? You seem to be kind of coming hard on the slaves saying, Cody, why aren't you talking, you know, more pointedly to masters, how they should treat their slaves? Well, for our passage today, it's because the passage doesn't actually talk to masters. This one is actually only pointed to slaves. Paul does earlier, in a letter earlier to the Ephesians, he did command, he did have commands for both slaves and masters, um, but here he only speaks to the slaves. Perhaps, I'd, it's hard to tell, we weren't there, but perhaps the masters had listened to the first letter and the slaves hadn't. These commands, though, are pretty common throughout Scripture, but there are a few ways in which this passage is unique. That leads us to our next question. What if the masters are Christians? Okay, slaves, honor your masters if they, uh, um, you know, 
aren't believers, but what if they're believers? Shouldn't that be different then? Verse 2 speaks specifically to slaves of Christian masters, and it, and it does say it's a little bit different. What does it say? It says first that they shouldn't be disrespectful. Don't use the fact that they're Christians and you're a Christian. You go to the same church and you sit in the same pew on Sunday as an excuse for being disrespectful to your master, Paul says. It would seem that perhaps some had used it as an excuse for insubordination. It's true that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, but that has to do with our standing before God through Christ as sons. We are all one in Christ, but that does not eliminate either the created order nor does it eliminate the social order that we find ourselves in. However, that's also not to say that a slave was to think of himself as stuck as a slave because of the gospel either. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, Paul writes this, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. He's saying essentially, if you were a slave when you became a Christian, don't worry about it in terms of your standing before God or your standing in the church. That is not a concern. You don't have to be worried about the fact that you might be somehow less because you're a slave on earth in God's eyes. That's not true. But, but if you have the opportunity to legally and appropriately not be a slave anymore, take the opportunity. If you can buy yourself out of slavery, take the opportunity. Get free. But staying enslaved isn't in hindering you in Christ in any way. So if a Christian slave could gain his freedom, Paul says, do it. The second thing that he says here to do if your master is a Christian is to serve all the better. It's sort of like uh, when someone says, give 110%, you're like, that's impossible. Like, I thought I was supposed to, or are you supposed to give 100%? Like, I don't know. And Paul's like, no, give your master all honor. And if they're Christian, give them 110% honor. Serve them all the better. Paul also tells them that because they're Christians, they should serve even better than they had before. But why? Why not? Why not if your master is a Christian, why not demand that your fellow believer lighten the load on you? Hey, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Can't you just give me a little less to do? Why not if your master is a Christian and you're a Christian, why not say, well, come on, man, we're brothers in Christ. Why don't you release me? Or, or go to your elders at your church and say, hey, get, make him release me from slavery. Why should slaves serve well instead? Paul gives us two reasons in verse 1 that all slaves, regardless of their master, should serve well. First, because of God's name, and second, because of God's word. There is an evangelistic reason, and there is an apologetic reasoning, certainly toward masters who may be unbelievers, but also towards all of those who look on. Paul calls them to hold fast 
through what we may see as a difficult situation, what was truly a difficult situation for many slaves, in order to not bring unnecessary reviling on God's name and on His church. Not only, not only because if people might look on and say, oh goodness, if, if you become a Christian, then you're going to have to let go, you know, release all your slaves or because, well, if, you're, if your slaves become Christians, don't let them hear the gospel because if they become Christians, it creates a huge problem for you. But because actually in continuing to serve well, maybe even better now having become a Christian, actually represents Christ as servant more fully. How did they do that? They became a Christian and they actually served me better now. Why? It's an apologetic, it's an evangelistic opportunity. And so in regard to believing masters, we're given another reason we're, we're given the reason of God's people. So God's name is a reason to serve well. God's word is a, is a reason to serve well. But also God's people is a reason, an additional motivation to serve Christians with good service. Because the benefit of that service goes to brothers and sisters in Christ who love the Lord and whom God loves. Those who are beloved by God. Literally, it's telling these slaves, serve the one, your master, whom Christ served on the cross. I want to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but, I, but first I want to um, talk about how this relates to us. You know, we're not slaves, not in this sense. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think the most practical application is in our own work environments, right? Although different than a slave-master relationship, nevertheless, we have people we report to. We have people who are over us, right? We should have similar attitudes, and we should have a similar work ethic there. When we work for Christians, this should increase our desire to be a benefit to them and to the company that we work for rather than diminish it. We should want to do well under the Christian, our Christian manager, not only for our benefit, but so that the boss over him goes, wow, your division is so productive. I don't know why, but you're doing fantastic. Here's a raise. And we go, yes, my hard work gave him a raise, my fellow Christian. Fantastic we had that attitude. But too often we don't. Too often in our world today, it's what is the minimum that I can do to get by here? Well, they, didn't, they don't pay me to do that, so I'm not going to. That kind of attitude is what permeates our culture. And God says, that's, that's gross. That's what that is. What if I... What, I can imagine Jesus saying, what if I did that? What would that mean for you? It's becoming less and less popular to have that kind of attitude towards work. Too often we believe that our employer somehow owes us more 
just because we showed up and did a full eight hours work. No, that's like minimum requirement, folks. That's minimum requirement. Or worse yet, we look to take advantage of Christian employers who are Christian. We, we think, well, you're Christian like me, so you'll have grace on me if I'm late. You'll have grace on me if I can't show up. You'll have grace on me because I don't work. You know, they'll forgive me because they're a Christian, so I can kind of get away with it. That's deplorable. That should make our stomachs turn as Christians, that we would do that to our fellow believers or to any employer, in fact. And this is the way in which this actually could be, it becomes apologetic for God's word and for God's name when the world around us goes, you know what, I don't like what those Christians have to say about this or that. I don't like what they have to say about slaves in their, in their Bible. I don't like what they have to say about um, uh, issues with sexuality or whatever. I don't like what they teach on this and this and this, but I'll tell you what, I will hire them all day long because they work every day, they work hard, they work honest, and I don't have to worry about anything when it's in their hands. What's why is that? So what I think is a little bit of what this passage means for us. But, but I want to share a little bit of how did Jesus elevate Christian slaves? How, does he, how did he elevate slaves? In what ways has Christ made a low earthly position of high value in God's house? Well, I've got, I've got four, four brief ways here. First, by freeing them from the greatest slavery. Jesus says in John 8, 34, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do you understand that when you practice sin, you are a slave to sin? It is death. We think, oh, if I, if I believe in Jesus and I've got to obey Jesus, and that's kind of like, we think that's slavery. We think that's like, oh, I've got to have this terrible obligation. That is freedom. He is freeing you to be obedient. He is freeing you to righteousness. It is a privilege and a grace to obey Christ. Our greatest slavery is not first external, but internal. We are slaves to sin in our own hearts, and that causes us to practice sin, which only brings pain and death into our life, into the lives of our families, of our churches, of our communities, of our world. Many think that freedom is firstly external. To be free from any restrictions or any authorities uh, is to have, you know, true freedom. To have freedom, you have to cut down anything that stands over you. But uh, I love what J.I. Packer wrote. He wrote, the idea that freedom is what you have when you have thrown off all the, re the uh, uh, repressions or constraints, all the things that constrain you, is a false trail which leads nowhere save to puzzlement and disillusioned bitterness. You think that throwing off all of these restraints is what's going to free you, and then you wonder why you're not very free. You wonder why your life is a mess. You wonder why your heart is in knots. You wonder why your, your wife is leaving you and your family's messed up and you can't figure anything out and your heart is twisted and, and is anxious and is uh, overwhelmed and depressed. You wonder. You're not free. That's not freedom. 
Christ gives us freedom. He gives us freedom from sin, both its guilt and the power of it over us, but that's not even the pinnacle of what He does. What's amazing is that from that first step, we move towards the real goal, which is not freedom from things, but freedom to something. Freedom to what is right and good. Freedom to Jesus Christ our Lord. Freedom to eternity and inheritance in Him. It's not freedom from something, it's freedom to someone. Freedom to be adopted into His family. Freedom to be united with Him. Freedom to have communion with God, the creator of the entire universe. Freedom to live as we were created to live, instead of in bondage to slavery. Freedom to live for the one who created us and truly loves us and died for us. To love him and to love our fellow man and to have joy, to have hope, and to have contentment in him alone. Because that's the only place that it's found. Your sins will never give it to you. It will only give you death. And thus, this inner state of freedom through Christ pushes out into our lives, not against, but through our created nature, and through, not against, the providential position that God puts us in. Do you understand that? That you can be in the lowest place, providentially God has put you there, He has chosen that for you, and yet through freedom in Him, He can give you the greatest sense of freedom. That the slave in Ephesus who was in Christ was more free than the master who owned him who did not know Christ. Do we believe that? Second, by making slaves and masters into brothers in his household. How does does Jesus elevate Christians, how can we have, uh, though we have a low earthly position, we can be of high value in God's household? Because He makes slaves and masters on earth into brothers in eternity. Jesus continues in John 8, He says this, The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. If the son has set you free by His grace, you are free indeed. You have an inheritance in Christ. You are adopted into His family. You are no longer a slave for eternity. Our inheritance is in heaven. I think about the story of the prodigal son. The son leaves. He wastes everything away. He, decide, he realizes, my, my dad's servants are in better position than I am. I'll go back and I'll plead to be a servant in his house. And what does the father do before the son can even say anything? He comes and he wraps his cloak around him and he puts a ring on his finger and he says, no, you're my son and you're a part of this inheritance. Third, by providing an opportunity to add our service to His loving service. Do you get this? That not only has He set us free from sin, not only are we adopted into His family, we have an inheritance in heaven, but right now we have the an opportunity to add our service to His loving service. That He enables us by the Spirit, He empowers us to actually serve one another and add to the service that He has done for us. To put it another way, to serve Christ is the truest form of freedom. 
To serve Christ is the truest form of freedom. We serve Christ when we serve one another. As sons, we can live for our Father and for His kingdom. We are free to live for God and not with ulterior selfish motives. We are free to live not for avoiding doing wrong, but pursuing the best and most in every situation. We are free from the need of of more and from the bitterness that that brings when we don't get what we want because we have joy from God that increases God's blessings and remains with us no matter whether we have plenty or whether we have little, whether we have what we think we need or whether we don't. Friends, we have the opportunity these slaves that, that Paul is speaking to in Ephesus through this letter to, to Timothy have an opportunity to add to Christ's service, their own service, for their Christian brother who is their master. And they should be on their knees saying, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. And we should be on our knees saying, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to serve to serve those who you served in your death. Finally, Jesus elevates us, even in low position, he elevates us by moving us toward a future where slavery does not exist. When Paul outlines instructions for certain social relationships, he often appeals to some other aspect of God's uh, decreed will, his revealed will in Scripture, right? For husbands and wives, when he talks about the relationship between them, he grounds that in creation order and before the fall in Genesis 2. For parents and kids, he appeals to the fifth commandment, right? But for slaves and masters, he doesn't do that in the New Testament. And I think, he, I think this tells us that while these other social relationships, fathers and mothers with kids or husbands and wives, are, are relationships that are to endure to the end of the earth, they should always be, but slaves and masters may exist, but they don't have to exist. Husbands and wives have to always exist in the way that God designed. That is what they are to do. Parents and children have to exist in the way that God designed. That's what they're to do. But I think here, because he does not ground it, because Paul never grounds it in some other part of God's decreed will, it opens up the opportunity to say, if it does, do it this way, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to be. And I think that's further supported by his encouragement to obtain freedom in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's further supported by Paul's instructions to Philemon in the letter to Philemon. If you want to read that this week, I would encourage you to do so. But this transformation is not and was not a revolutionary one. It was not an immediate, abrupt, get it at all costs, bring the guns, let's make it happen. It rather is a reformation. As I said earlier, almost every civilization for most of history until recent times has had slaves legally. It is, I want to say this, I'm going to be a little bold here for a second, I suppose. It is inevitable in pagan, polytheistic, and atheistic cultures that slavery will happen. It is inevitable. Because as soon as you begin to see people, not in a Christian worldview, not by God's word, but people in a purely Um, materialistic, purely humanistic sense, it is inevitable that the next step is to say, and I'm better than you, you are less than me. 
that your inherent worth is less because our inherent worth is no longer tied to the God who remains the same and who created us. So it's only a matter of time when you have a pagan, polytheistic, or atheistic uh, culture, it's only a matter of time before slavery happens again, and we see it happening in our world through sexual slavery all over the place. We saw it even in most recent times in the Soviet Union. And as our culture reverts back, I think we'll see it more and more. You understand, our culture is not moving forward. It's reverting back to ancient paganism. But it is a consistent fact of history. I would say an undisputed fact for anyone who is an honest historian that wherever the gospel has gone, wherever the gospel has permeated a culture, slavery has eventually ended. It just is. And questions about slavery will probably always be tricky, but the best answer to slavery is clear, and it has been proven time and time again. It's clear in Scripture. It's been proven in history. The best answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the only answer to our slavery to sin. And is the only answer that has consistently got rid of slavery in civilizations throughout history. Not only has it consistently eliminated that slavery in the life of civilizations, but it effectively eliminates sin and death from our own lives. And in the lives of all who repent and believe in Jesus. God takes people who the kingdoms of this world think are small and insignificant, and he empowers them to work mightily for an everlasting kingdom. A low earthly position can be of high value in God's house because he who now has the highest position once took the lowest. Let's pray.